This semester we've been talking about encounters with Jesus in John's gospel. And tonight we're talking about Jesus and our doubts. And to set that up, I want to tell you about a friend of mine named Matt Howell. Matt uh, was a friend in college. Uh, we went and did, um, we were both interns at the RUF for a couple years. He was at LSU in Baton Rouge. Um, and then while well, I was at Vanderbilt. And then he's now a campus minister in University of Tennessee in Knoxville. And, and Matt... Uh, it's really funny. He's, he's a hilarious person. It's really funny to listen to him talk about his complicated relationship with flying on airplanes. Um, he sees and understands how practical flying is. You get somewhere so much faster. You can get things done on a plane. Um, he, he understands or kind of assents to the physics of flying, propulsion and lift and aerodynamics and all that stuff. And he even understands that that flying is safer than driving, that the safety record for flying is, is basically spotless when compared to how many car, uh, wrecks are on the road uh, each year. And yet with all, of that, with all of that ascent, with all those facts, with all of that believing, as he tells it, every time there is an option to step onto a plane, he feels like he's going to explode from the inside. Um, he gets so anxious. All of those facts are not enough to overcome his doubt and his questioning and wondering, if I step onto this plane over that threshold, can I trust the pilots over here and can I trust this plane to get me there? So he says every time it's this like crisis of faith. And in more recent years, he's gotten a prescription with anti-anxiety pills that he takes one before he gets on a plane. So the moral of this story is drugs. Drugs are your friend. Um, no, what, what I'm trying to tell you in that is that it's possible to have all the information out there and to still struggle with the embodiment of that, with believing that it's true, with giving yourself to it. That volitional act of the will to trust yourself to someone, something else. And tonight in this passage, we're going to see this encounter between Jesus and one of his 12 disciples named Thomas. One of his 12 disciples named Thomas. And we're going to be uh, looking at this issue of faith and doubt. Can we know what we believe is true? And if we do, how do we trust it? How do we give ourselves to it? How does this all work together? So I'm going to read for us from John chapter 20, uh, verses 24 through 31. Shorter reading tonight than the past weeks. Grateful for that. It says this, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples, disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. 
But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is God's word for us tonight. What I want us to see in this interaction is that Jesus meets Thomas in his doubt. And he meets us in our doubt. And so we're going to frame that through these three different headings. The first is Thomas and the nature of doubt. Jesus and the response to doubters. And lastly, John and his reason for writing. Let's go to that first one. Thomas and the nature of doubt. Another friend of mine was telling a story about uh, when he graduated from from high school, his parents had bought him a ticket to go see uh, Leonard Skinner. Leonard Skinner is this classic uh, rock musician. Um, It's funny. One of his famous songs, most famous, is called Freebird. And it's just kind of become a thing that when you go to concerts, people yell out for the band like from Dixie Chicks to Pantera, like to, they just yell out, sing Freebird. And so if you're ever at a show and people say that, it's Leonard Skinner. He's the one who wrote, sang that song. It's his. And so my friend Ben is at this concert with a, with a friend and two rows in front of him, there is this guy who starts yelling, play Freebird in the opening act. It's not even Skinner up there. Like he just starts doing it and every time between between songs he yells it again over and over and over and they didn't play it so the show's over he gets up and and the friend or this guy he goes to the back of the room (laughs) and ben later found out to get more beer and nachos but that comes later uh the guy goes to the back of the room leonard skinner comes out and plays the encore and plays what free bird and the guy's not there So he shows back up. Once he heard them playing or doing other music, he comes in, running down the aisle. He sits down, and Ben says he witnessed this guy turning to his friend saying, What did I miss? He said, You missed Freebird. He's holding nachos and beer, and he missed Freebird. That's Thomas in this story. (laughs) Let me tell you, that's Thomas. A week before... When the pastor says eight days later, in Jewish minds, that that means a week. That's like it's including this day plus the next seven days. So eight days before, a week before, the day of the resurrection, Jesus' disciples are standing around, hanging out together. They're, They're trying to figure it all out. And Jesus appears to them, and Thomas is not there. And he shows up holding nachos and a beer, and he's like, hey, what did I miss? And they essentially look at him and said, and this is the passage leading up to this one, and they said, well, you missed Jesus. Uh, He resurrected from the dead and he showed up. He appeared to us. Um, It's all true. And Thomas says, yeah, I don't believe that. I don't believe it. Thomas doubts. And right in the middle of, of Thomas's doubt, we get an insight into the nature of doubt and skepticism itself that many of us have. Um, We can't explore this exhaustively tonight because obviously there's just a ton here you could talk about, but we're going to get started on that process. If you want to talk more about this later, I'd love to. You probably have friends who would love to, but um, just consider this a beginning to a conversation. The first way that our doubt is exposed and the nature of doubt is that we doubt because of insufficient data. Look at what Thomas says in verse 25. 
unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I will never believe. Now, what's really interesting about this is that Thomas was an all-in follower of Jesus. Like, he was all-in by this point. This is... This is not a new thing for him. He has not been an outsider to, to Jesus and to all the things that have been happening. He was one of the 12. So that it means a lot of things. But at a very minimum, it means that he has seen Jesus do all kinds of miracles. Taking the loaves of bread and feeding thousands of people. He has seen Jesus heal people, raise Lazarus from the dead. John says in John 11 that Thomas was right there. He has seen all kinds of things. And so you would think that that when his friends say, dude, you missed Jesus, that he'd be like, oh, gosh, I can't believe it. He's like, no, I don't believe you. We think that he would joke and say, I can't believe it. But what he actually says is, I don't believe it. Thomas has seen it all. And he still doubts. He's saying the resurrection is too much. It's too much. Because if that's true, that changes everything. He said, I don't believe it. I have to touch him. He doesn't just want, this is a big deal. He doesn't just want empirical data. He wants a personal experience. Empirical data is not enough for Thomas. He's got all these people around him, friends, trusted friends, who are telling him something they saw. But first-hand account, he's saying it's not enough. I want to see it. He sets the epistemological bar very high. In order for me to know, I have to see him. I have to touch him. What we tend to think in the 21st century is this. And I've heard some of you all say it to me. I certainly thought it. That Man, if I could just have lived when Jesus lived and seen the miracles, then I would have, it'd be so much easier to believe this. And I wouldn't struggle, and I wouldn't doubt as much, and you know it wouldn't be so hard. Thomas saw it all. He saw everything, except this first appearance, and he still doubts. He still doubts. I don't trust what you're telling me about Jesus. All the data he gathered wasn't enough. And I just want to say this. If Thomas didn't have enough data, then there's not going to be enough data to convince you that it's true either. It's got to take something else, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But there's just never going to be enough raw data to push you over into this rock-solid certainty of faith. Something else required. So we doubt because of insufficient data. Secondly, we doubt for personal reasons. Thomas missed out on what all of his friends experienced. This is like we have FOMO when we miss out on a fun weekend or like we miss going to the art crawl because we had to go to a competition or something. Thomas missed out on Jesus resurrected from the dead. This is like this is the ultimate FOMO of all FOMOs. He is distraught. Everyone else around him has had this amazing spiritual experience. Jesus appeared. He breathed on us and gave us the Holy Spirit. That's a whole different discussion. He gave us this mission. He told us we could take the gospel anywhere and people would believe it. Everything he talked about is coming true and we're all part of it. Yay! 
And Thomas is there like eating a nacho and holding the beer. And he's like, dang it. (laughs) I missed it. Y'all know what that feels like. When everyone else is spiritually growing, your best friends are having these mountaintop experiences. They go work at Canacook or at Youth Front or Pine Cove. They go do something amazing for the summer or on a mission trip and they come home and they're just raging about it. And you're like, I sat on my couch and watched Netflix for 10 hours a day. And when I wasn't watching Netflix, I was watching Hulu. Or I was at ConocoPhillips, or I was at Ernst & Young, or I was at One Oak, or I was up in Wichita, Kansas at Coke. <clears throat> like, that's what I did. And all of your friends are having these amazing spiritual highs and moments and everything. And in those moments, you start wondering, is this even true? Like, am I even a Christian? And those doubts start creeping in. Why is everyone else growing? Why is everyone else doing awesome? Why is everyone else... What's wrong with me? God, are you real? And that's just the reality of doubt. That's the nature of doubt. But Jesus does something with that. That's the second thing. Jesus' response to doubt. Look at verses 26 through 29 again. It says, eight days later, again, that's a week later. So this, we're on Sundays now. Jesus resurrected on a Sunday. On the next Sunday, this is the start of church, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them this time. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus had come and gone the week before. Jesus had come and gone by the time Thomas got there. He's got a beer and and, uh, nachos. He missed it. But Jesus knows about Thomas's doubt. We have no record that any of the other disciples were tattletelling on Thomas. It was like like they met Jesus midweek and they're like, hey. Thomas didn't believe it. Like, you need to go after him. Like, that didn't happen. But Jesus walks through walls, appears there, and he does two things which are very striking. The first thing he does is he brings peace, not shame. He comes to this crowd, including Thomas, and he says, Peace be with you. He doesn't then turn to Thomas and say, Now for you, why do you doubt me? Like, why didn't you believe your friends when they told you I resurrected? That's not there at all. Jesus says, Peace be with you. Thomas, peace, brother. How are you doing? Peace. Just real quick, do you know the God that doesn't shame you in your doubt? who's not up there like typing this hypothetical clipboard and just shaking his head and saying, I can't believe you don't believe this yet. I can't believe you're still so forgetful of all that I've done. Do you know the God who's big enough to handle your skepticism with tenderness and speak peace to you in the midst of that? So Jesus brings... God's peace, but he also embodies peace. 
He comes to Thomas and he embodies peace. When he comes, he meets Thomas in this very amazing way. I put the little chart there in your, in your handout. Again, in the absence of Jesus, Thomas says these things on the left-hand side. Unless these things happen, I will never believe. Jesus shows up and does everything in the right-hand column. It's a one-to-one layover. Unless I see his hands, Jesus says, see my hands. Unless I place my fingers in, his mark, in the mark of the nails, put your fingers here. Unless I do this, unless I do this, I will never believe. Jesus comes to you and says, do not disbelieve, but believe. I have just given you all the data and the personal experience you could want. And Thomas comes from that and says, my Lord and my God. It is the fullest confession of Jesus as Lord in the New Testament. This is it. That, that is what faith looks like. That's the profession. You are not only God, but you are my God. You are not only the Lord and master of everything. You are my Lord and master. That's awesome, right? It's really awesome. So let's talk about why we're struggling right now. Because if you're paying attention, you're thinking this. Yeah, if I touch Jesus also... I would believe, but we're not touching Jesus here at RUF or at Mountain View Baptist Church or at First Prayer. Like, ain't nobody touching Jesus these days. So what do we do? We think that Jesus doesn't give us his body, but he does. And he does it in two ways. First, he gives us the church. Listen how Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, and I'm paraphrasing some of this. He says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Catch this. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Paul is writing the Holy on on behalf of God through the Holy Spirit. And he's writing to a church, the Corinthian church. And he is saying, you are God's body. You are the body of Christ. I'm sorry. You are the body of Christ. And individually, you play a part in that. But together, you come together and you are Christ's body. And so if you want to know where you go to experience Jesus, it's not out in the forest by yourself with a a banjo or guitar or your Bible. It's not there. It's in the body, it's in the church, it's in the community of believers because Jesus has put his very spirit inside of his people. And so as you experience the love and as you experience the forgiveness and as you experience the acceptance from one another, you get a taste of what God is like. So he gives us the church. This is one of the reasons why... In RUF, we stress and we do so much as a community here and we do fun things and we do serious things and and we do lots of things because we're trying to say, if you want to know Jesus and experience him, come do it with us. And I know some of you can't do everything. You have lots of other things you do. That's totally fine. But you're always welcome to come because we believe that Jesus is here. He's at church. 
He's in the body of believers. Um, when, when Sarah and I were living in North Carolina, which was way away from family, it was way away from most uh, anybody who we knew, um, we went through some really hard stuff. We were newly married. That's hard enough. Um, but then we went through some family stuff that was exceedingly difficult. Um, we went through our own, uh, had struggles with fertility in there that was very sad and, and traumatic in many ways. And in the absence, again, of having family there and kind of the automatic people that you would go to to be comforted, we would call friends from church and we would go sit on their couch and they'd maybe have leftover dessert or not. And we'd sit there and what would they do? They'd just hold us and we would cry and we would try to talk and make sense of things that didn't make sense. And they would be there and they would love us. And we would walk away from there, not totally fine, but we would walk away from there knowing, yep, the Lord is with us. He hasn't forgotten about us. We are loved. God is here with them. And that's why in RUF, at the end of every semester, we have people who give testimonies, who, who talk about how God has met them in college. Not just through RUF, but sometimes that. And, and one of the things that you just hear again and again and again is, the community there was so amazing. I, I made friends that I never thought I would have, and, and people cared for me in ways that no one's ever cared for me, and all these things. How can you know that Jesus loves us and he cares about your doubt? He gives us his body in the church. But he also gives us his body in the Lord's Supper. Think about that. I don't, if, you're, if you've been around church much at all, not RUF because we're not a church, we don't do the Lord's Supper and other things, but if you've been to church much or you grew up there and you've ever seen a pastor or a priest or whatever do the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper or communion or, or whatever it is they call it, they've probably held it up, hold up the bread and, says, and say what? After just modeling Jesus, he took bread with his disciples at the Last Supper and said, this is my body which is given for you. Take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. Do you hear what he says? This is my body, which is being reserved for you until you get your life together and you stop doubting and you get everything figured out. Then you can come and take it. It's not what he says. This is my body, which is for you. Take and eat. The bar of entrance to the table of Jesus, the Lord's Supper, is simple faith. It is, do you know that you are a sinner who needs Jesus and his forgiveness? If you can say yes, you get his body. He gave Thomas his body there in person. He gives us his body in the church and in the Lord's Supper. He does it spiritually for us now, just as he did it physically for Thomas then. Jesus gives us his body. Lastly tonight, we're going to see John and his reason for writing. Sorry, I got behind on the outline there. Look back with me at verses 30 and 31. It says, now Jesus did many things. This is the author John just commenting on this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. 
What's John, what's John saying? Who was John? John was an apostle. He was with Jesus. He was one of those 12 disciples alongside Thomas. And Thomas, I mean, John is summarizing here right at the end of the book, not quite at the very end, but he's saying, look, y'all, I was an eyewitness. I saw all these things. I've written some of them down. If I, if I were to write them all, there wouldn't even be enough room here. But I have done this so that you may believe and so that you may have life. Look, John was not doing this because he was part of some inner circle that was trying to grab power and make some big statement. We're going to talk about it in just a second. But like John, as one of the apostles, along with many of the other apostles, they died because of this. When they started saying this and Christianity started getting a following... The Roman Empire looked at that and said, we have to do away with that. Because that's threatening our rule. That's threatening our own religion. And so John is writing these things down at the cost of his own life in a very real way. Why? Because he wants you to believe. Because he wants you to have life. He's saying there's life in here. He wants you to believe because it's true. And so... What I want to do is I want to give just six quick evidences for the truthful, historical veracity of the resurrection of Jesus. Okay? And again, I'm just going to introduce these as as jumping off points for some of you to talk about later with me or with others. First, I want to say is the empty tomb. This is kind of a bare historical minimum. People back then, and even people now will say, oh, yeah, but there, was a, there were grave robbers, and there were people who came and stole the body in the middle of the night, whether that was disciples or other people. And here's the deal. Roman soldiers, like, you didn't mess with them. The Roman Empire wasn't the most powerful empire in the world accidentally. It wasn't because they threw good parties. Like, they were dominant. And with soldiers, legions of soldiers guarding the tomb, there wasn't anybody who was getting past them. It just doesn't make sense. And, and, and furthermore, it's, if, if the body was there, then how come it was never, ever, ever recovered? That would be a really easy way for the Roman Empire to end this little uprising is you produce the body, you put Jesus' head on a stick, and it's over. But they never did. They never found the body. Second thing is the eyewitness testimony of the resurrection sightings. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, look, there were more than 500 people there who saw it. He's almost just saying it like matter-of-factly. That there were 500 people there who saw it, more than that. Jesus appeared to them all. He's saying, don't, you don't have to believe me, go ask them. Many of them are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Some of them are still living, go ask them. There were all kinds of eyewitnesses. Next is the first witnesses were women. And you're like, what? So here's the thing. If you were trying to like put together a case or make up a story that would be credible and believable in that time and space and day and age, you would never, ever have women be the first ones who showed up at the tomb. Why? I'm not trying to sound sexist. I'm just telling you what was real. They were not credit, credible in court. The testimony of women was not believed and accepted in court. 
And so why in the world would the Bible, would the gospel writers say that Mary showed up at the tomb and some of the other women? Why would they ever do that if they're trying to construct a case? The only reason they would ever do it is if it was true. And they're just saying, this is who showed up first and then they came and told us. Next, that new beliefs started arising very quickly. We're in the second week. The story takes place two weeks, or really a week after Jesus is resurrected. And notice that these Jewish disciples who for their whole life and in their whole ancestry and history have worshipped on Saturday as the Sabbath day, their day of worship. They are now meeting on Sunday to worship Jesus. So A... They've changed their religious practices and laws. That was a big deal. Secondly, they're now worshiping Jesus. He was their buddy and like the miracle worker guy, but now it's like worship. He's God now, my Lord and my God. That is a sign of worship. And no one would have been more hard to convince that they should change their practice than good Jewish people. And yet, what do we see? They start doing it almost immediately. So new beliefs are happening. Fifthly, the apostles died for the true claims of Christianity willingly. Look, people die for lies all the time. People get brainwashed, people get manipulated, uh, all that stuff, deceived. But people do not die for lies that they make up themselves. Do you see that? Like, we understand people get deluded and, and all that stuff, and they'll go die for things they think are true. But if you have made up, unless you're, well, let me give a caveat, unless you're like seriously, mentally not there and deranged, you don't make up a story and carry it on and say, yep, we're going to die for this. It's like my friends and I in high school, we did lots of things we can't talk about, but um, we would do things that were kind of maybe illegal, but maybe not, just kind of general small town raucous. And um, like we would do it, and it would be really fun, but the moment the cops showed up or got called, we ghosted. Like we were out of there, we were done. Like the moment the pressure got put on, donezo. Jesus' disciples would have had to say the other thing, the other way, like, oh no, it's really getting intense here. Like, oh, should we hold it together? Yes, let's die for this. That sounds great. It didn't happen. Lastly, chronological snobbery. What does that mean? It's easy to look back and say, oh, they were so primitive. First century people, agrarian society, they just believed anything. No, they didn't. That's what this whole story is showing is that Thomas didn't believe it. He wanted personal experience just like you do. We can't just pull that card and make everybody uh, back then look dumb. Dead people stayed dead back then. So look, if you'll allow for the concept of resurrection, then the evidence for it far outweighs anything else. There is more evidence for the historicity and the factuality of the resurrection of Jesus than there is for Caesar Augustus crossing the Rubicon and igniting the Roman Civil War. And only one of which is really questioned by history. At the end of the day, Christianity offers a lot, though, doesn't it? 
It offers hope in this life. It offers hope in the life to come. It offers you meaning. It tells you that you're loved and you can be part of a family. It gives you purpose in your life. You can be part of this kingdom of God, which is advancing all over the world. It offers you a ton of stuff, forgiveness from sin, appeased conscience. But I'm going to tell you right now, very clearly, you should never believe in Christianity because of the benefits it offers you. The only reason you should ever believe in Christianity and the truth claims of the Bible is because it's true. It affords you all kinds of things. But you should only believe it if it's true. And it is. And Jesus, y'all, Jesus knows that it's hard to believe it. Look at verse 29. He says, Blessed are those who believe without seeing. If you are someone who's really wrestling with doubt and faith, let me ask you this. Is it possible that the absence of faith in your life isn't so much because God has been hiding as it is that, I don't mean to say you're childish, but as it is that you're kind of like a child when he or she puts fingers in their ears and closes their eyes and starts, no, 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 no. Like making a noise so that whoever it is out there will go away. Maybe the truth claims of Christianity are just really inconvenient for you. And you don't want to believe because you realize that if it's true, it's going to mean something in your life. That you don't get to have control over your schedule, over your future. That maybe you don't get to keep doing whatever you're doing with your boyfriend or girlfriend or that random guy or that random girl. Or maybe that you don't get to use your money exactly how you want to use your money, buying all these little things to try and quell the the sadness inside of you. Maybe there are real things in your life that are you functionally sticking your fingers in your ears saying, I don't want to believe it, and I'm going to blame it on God that he hasn't showed up. If that's you, I at least want you to be honest with yourself to say, It's not that God hasn't shown up. It's that I haven't wanted him. I haven't wanted to acknowledge that he's shown up. Because look, Christianity has always taught that facts are not enough. They aren't. That there is, it is right for Thomas to want personal experience. Y'all, Christianity teaches that the Holy Spirit comes and will give you personal experience. He will testify to the truth of Christianity inside of you. Are your fingers in your ears? Or can you say, God, I'm going to take them out. If it's true, make it be true. Convince me of it. Whatever that means, if it means I have to stop and do a U-turn in my life, whatever it means, I'll do it. Jesus' life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, he has done it all for you so that you can have life, John says. I'm going to finish with this story. Put it up on the screen because it's, uh, it's kind of long. David Ireland was in his young 20s when he began to limp. Um, he had some degenerative, ended up being a very terminal or a terminal condition. It was kind of like ALS, but pro- progressed much quicker. And when he learned that he had um, just a few months to live, they also found out that his wife was pregnant with their first and only child. And he knew that he would never meet his child, so he wrote and dictated some letters, which were later published in a book called 
letters to an unborn child. I'm going to read an excerpt of one of them. It says this. My child, I want you to know what your mother is like. She's absolutely incredible, and I think that I can make it clear to you by just telling you what happens when we go out to eat at night. When we go out to a restaurant, this is what she has to do. Because I'm a quadriplegic now and in a wheelchair, she has to bathe me, dress me, empty the urine and fecal bags that are strapped to my legs, then put me in the wheelchair, drive me out to the garage, open the garage, open the door, get out a board, pull up the arm on my chair, slide me across the board, put me in the car, put down the arm, fold up the chair, open the trunk, put in the chair, close the trunk, close the door, get in the car, back it out, close the garage door, drive to the restaurant. When we get there, the whole process is reversed. Stop the car, get out, open the trunk, get out of the chair, unfold it, bring it to the door, open the door, put down on the board, slide me across, put down the arm, close the door, push me in, shut the trunk. We sit down at a table. She feeds me, wipes the drool from my mouth because I can barely eat, gets up, pays the check, and then the whole process is reversed. Go out to the car, open the door, take off the arm, put down the board, slide me across, put down the arm, fold up the chair, go to the back, open the trunk, Put up the chair, close the trunk, get in the car, drive, get to the garage, up goes the garage door, everything else reversed, take me in, clean me, empty the fecal and urine bags, bathe me, and put me in my pajamas, lay me in bed, and son, here are her last words to me. With real warmth, she'll say, honey, thank you for taking me out to eat tonight. I never quite know what to say. John is writing this to you because he's saying Jesus has done everything. He's done everything for you. You can trust him. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Please pray with me.